A lot of times when people have addiction, um, they're of two minds. It's not that they don't want to stop per se. It's that part of them wants to stop and part of them doesn't or part of them is terrified by the prospects of stopping. So anything that can be done to kind of help the person tap into their desire to change and find something that they're willing to pursue, um, I think those are good approaches to take. Welcome to the podcast Breaking Free, produced by the Cook County Sheriff's Office. For many, one of the more difficult parts about caring for someone with a substance use disorder is knowing when to intervene and how to intervene. There is a lot of pressure to get that right, and there can be a lot of fear about getting it wrong. In this interview, Dr. Christopher Holden explains the modern thinking on how to approach that situation, and he discusses what steps to take if the person accepts treatment or doesn't. Dr. Holden is the Director of Addiction Services at the University of Illinois Hospital and Health Sciences System. He is an expert on opioid addiction and the evolution of how the medical community is treating it. We start this interview with Dr. Holden explaining whether someone needs to hit rock bottom before agreeing to treatment. Kind of traditionally, the way treatment was viewed was um, people could only enter treatment or should only enter treatment when they were ready, um, when they were motivated. And uh, the idea being if the person was kind of ambivalent or thought they didn't need treatment or they thought they didn't need to stop their use, um, the idea was then, then they weren't ready for treatment. Um, and what we would tell them was uh, come back when you hit rock bottom. And so basically the idea was the person needed to have more consequences before they could enter treatment. Um, but what we've kind of realized now um, and the way treatment is conceptualized nowadays is the idea that treatment itself can, or a goal of treatment, can be to engender motivation or awareness um, in somebody to that, that they have an addiction, um, that they need to do something about it, or that they, 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 that they want to do something about it. So it doesn't start with, treatment doesn't start with entering treatment or starting on medication. It starts with trying to get the person to understand that they have an addiction that's affecting their lives. Yeah, and to, to meet them where they're at. Um, that's not to say, uh, though, uh, that sometimes coercion, uh, some people seek treatment and people change uh, for, for various reasons. Sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it's internal reasons um, you know, that, that kind of all come from within. Sometimes it's due to outside forces, you know, pressure from loved ones, uh, consequences from work, legal problems. Um, and a lot of times it's a combination of things, both an internal desire and outside forces that come into play. But so my, my, my point being, or one point I just wanted to make there was this idea that, uh, that sometimes coercion, I wish I'd chosen a different word there, but I'll stick with it. Sometimes outside forces can be powerful uh, uh, mediators uh, of, of change for people. There is a, a perception that the individual suffering from o OUD or, or struggling with OUD is the only one who can, who can make a change, that, that others around them, their support system, their family can't really, don't have control over the situation. Is that, do those around them have any sort of control or should they, should they just let this, let the individual hit rock bottom? How, how do they intervene in, in an effective manner? There's no, 
I wish I had an easy answer for that. But then at the same time, if I had an easy answer for that, I would imagine anyone listening who has dealt with a family member or experienced a loved one with an addiction wouldn't, wouldn't believe what I was saying um, if I had a road answer. Um, so, you know, that, that, that being said, in short answer or in short, you know, these decisions come down to the person who's experiencing um, the addiction. Um, but as far as what, uh, what family members, what loved ones can do, um, I think these websites can be an excellent place to start in terms of becoming aware of resources and what have you. I think another general approach that tends to be helpful with somebody who is suffering from addiction um, is to try to tap into their inherent desire to change. Um, a lot of times when people have addiction, um, they're of two minds. It's not that they don't want to stop per se. It's that part of them wants to stop and part of them doesn't or part of them is terrified by the prospects of stopping. So anything that can be done to kind of help the person tap into their desire to change and find something that they're willing to pursue, um, I think those are good approaches to take. What I found a lot of times is that um, hopefully people have a healthcare professional in their life, be it a primary care physician or someone else, if at all possible, um, if, if the loved one, the family member could speak to the, the healthcare professional with the person's permission, with them present, um, a lot of times that can be an avenue to maybe getting some help. We try to have this no wrong door approach um, that no matter how somebody presents, no matter who they're kind of asking for help or no, no matter who becomes aware of an issue, um, they should be prepared to try to help navigate them towards the help that they might need. So when you, can you walk me through what does that conversation with someone look like when you're, when you're talking about um, earlier the, the motivating factor or getting them to see um, something? Like what does that kind of conversation look like? I guess it, it varies on the person. Mm -hmm. um, well, let me, I mean, let me ask you, what have you, like in speaking to your patients, uh, or not your patients, but the, the you know, right. uh, the people you've spoken to, uh, who are probably, like, it sounds like they're at various stages, um, or kind of varied, various points, um, what, you know, what have you, what have you heard them say as far as? Sure, the people, yeah. um, individuals in, in custody at the jail who, who are going through drug treatment, um, they often talk about the the desire to um, you know reunify with their kids, make yeah. it up to their family. Um, I hear a lot about uh, a tremendous amount of shame um, and guilt, the um, but also hope and and yeah. determination, followed by by fear, the, the, the fear of kind of leaving custody, leaving the treatment program, yeah. and and feeling that they may use again and 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 they'll go back down that spiral well one thing that always seems to be true is that different people change at different times for different reasons um, and it tends to be idiosyncratic and sometimes unpredictable you know so it's it's hard to take this one-size-fits-all approach um, i remember uh hearing about somebody who 
was a, just a, a lifelong tobacco user and could not quit smoking for the life of them. And one day they were leaving work and they were going to go pick up one of their kids from school. And they before they got in the car, they smoked a cigarette because they didn't want the car to smoke like cigarettes. And so then they got in the car and as they were driving, it started to rain. And they were five minutes later than they would have been otherwise. And their kid was standing out there in the rain and had been out in the rain for a couple minutes when he pulled up. And just seeing his kid being rained on somewhat um, and you know, for whatever reason that that clicked for that person that's the sort of thing that we see where we see these different sort of like these, these different things that come up um, and I think when you if you can kind of latch on or kind of grab on to that what somebody brings to the table about what kind of has their wheels turning or what has them kind of you know thinking about these things that that's that's the way that's the way real meaningful change can at least start to occur. And I, I, I think the key word there is, is start, because it seems like I think many people have many of those instances where they realize, like, I need to stop. You know, this is doing this to my life, and then, and then they have the determination, but then they can't, yeah, they can't yeah. carry through. And, and I'm wondering if you could tell us what, why can't they carry through? Like, what... And, and I think this gets into the realm of addiction being a disease, but why is it so, to be simplistic, why is yeah. it so hard to stop? When we think about addiction, there's, there's, there's lots of different ways to think about addiction. What is addiction? Um, this is answering a bigger question that you were asking, but um, I think it's important to kind of frame it. Like throughout history, and for the most part today, the way we conceptualize addiction is as a moral failing. Um, and there's reasons for that. It makes intuitive sense when you see somebody um, doing things that you don't think are right and you can't really account for it. Otherwise, it's, it's, it's easy to kind of just decide that this is because of some sort of moral failing. Just as an aside there, I think that's, again, that's what's very, the way it's kind of con commonly conceptualized, and I think that's the way uh, the public generally views it. Um, I would imagine uh, it's been the traditional view of law enforcement. Um, but where I think it's also a view that sometimes gets glossed over or uh, is that, unfortunately, that's historically how it's also been viewed by health professionals, mm -hmm. um, patients themselves or people themselves struggling with addiction. A lot of times view it as a moral failing themselves. So there's these other ways to think about addiction as well. That's the moral model. There's this other, there's also this idea that like it's a learned behavior, um, powerfully learned um, over time and what have you. Um, another way of thinking about it is that it's this primarily social model that when you're surrounded by when you're in a drug saturated environment and you're surrounded by other people using substances, people you know, people you respect and admire for one reason or another, um, it's this the social sort of thing. Um, then there's also this, this self-medication model, this idea that uh, the substance use is being driven by something else, by depression, by anxiety. An underlying by, trauma or right. demon or something. Right. And then there's the disease model, um, this idea that uh, addiction itself is a disease. So, um, and there's a lot to that model 
um, that makes sense. Um, when you think about disease, uh, uh, and what by disease I mean a, a, a medical disease, for it to be a disease, it has to addiction has to like affect an organ. It has to have an effect on the body, just as you know asthma affects the lungs, per se. Uh, with addiction, uh, drugs of abuse affect the brain. The, the changes to the brain can manifest themselves in behavior um, in a couple of different ways. Uh, one is that the, by the reward system getting hijacked, uh, it can be basically that uh, substances are the only thing become gain a lot of salience at the expense of other sorts of behaviors, um, the sorts of things that people might do that give them a sense of reward or, or well-being, such as going to work, such as taking care of their family, such as engaging in hobbies, these sorts of things over time get diminished um, at the expense of, of using substances, which is the only thing that can kind of fulfill those sorts of things. Um, we have parts of the brain that are involved with like kind of planning and decision making. We call these executive, the execu executive functioning um, of the brain, deciding that like, hey, I need to plan to do this, um, or I should not do this other sort of thing because it would be bad um, those sorts of parts of that parts of the brain or those those systems can get dysregulated in addiction as well um, and then also we have like the stress system that um, under ordinary circumstances a stressor occurs and we're distressed by it so to speak um, but we may be able to adapt and kind of handle it and keep going uh, when people have addictions when stressors occur their brain screams to them in capital letters they need to use a substance this also is something and I think well, we may talk about this a little later as well um, when people can predispose people to relapse um, when people have been in recovery from a long time people who have suffered from an addiction or suffer from an addiction and are no longer using substances um, and things are going well um, stress can be a powerful precipitant to, to relapse even if somebody hasn't used in years um, and this is one one of the ways that medication-assisted treatment can help prevent relapse, it can help reduce or attenuate that stress response and reduce the urge to use. Once the individual is, is willing to seek treatment, what should they do? I, I think the, the popular notion is that there should be this, someone hits rock bottom, intervention, and then you drive them to a 30-day inpatient yeah. or 60-day inpatient thing, then they should come out clean and sober and straight and narrow. Yeah. What, what's the reality with, with OUD? What, what does the science tell us we should be looking to do? So bringing, back, bringing it back to the disease model of addiction, um, more specifically, we review it as a chronic disease. Um, there are lots and lots of parallels between addiction and other chronic diseases where there's a behavioral component to it, um, such as diabetes. Um, and we realize that like sometimes things like diabetes require hospitalizations and acute care, um, but in reality, diabetes is best managed long-term over a long period of time. Um, and in general, like when things are going well, you get monitoring and what have you um, and kind of not, you know, uh, uh, check-ins with primary care, your primary care doctor on regular intervals and so forth. Um, one thing that's important, though, is that uh, uh, one size doesn't fit all. 
Um, and that was been kind of the traditional conception of addiction treatment that, yeah, everyone needed to go to 30 days. Everyone needed to be detoxed and have 28 days and then be discharged and they were done with it. Um, and that's all the addiction treatment they needed and what have you. Um, where we're at now is more of this idea that uh, different uh, settings, different amounts, different types of treatment uh, work for different people. Um, and one of the most important things or determine, determinations is what does a person want? Um, what, and and what, are, what are they able to do um, in terms of uh, uh, kind of the amount of treatment and what have you? So that seems a little... Um, not what people would be thinking of. What is what is the the, yeah. the person suffering an addiction want? I mean, normally I think we're conditioned to think they shouldn't be making those decisions because their decision would be to just continue to use or put themselves in a position where they could continue to use. Well, I guess, and that that's a good point. Um, but I think the most important thing is to get the person through the door, whatever door that is, so that they can be having a conversation with somebody, um, with a treatment provider, um, or someone who's aware of how to refer people. And that ideally would be a, a primary care doctor would be a good person in that regard. Um, so one of the things that they would ideally be presented with is a menu of options. You know, here are some different things you can choose from and what have you. Um, one thing I always try to keep in mind, though, is that I'm playing, you know, I want to do everything I can to help somebody um, and to keep them safe. Um, but we're also trying, to, and a lot of times there's very acute, life-threatening or very big, powerful things happening in the short term. But I'm also trying to play the long game um, and a recognition that um, even if we don't solve everything right now, um, even if the person isn't... Uh, you know, doesn't stop using immediately and never uses again, that's not a, a failure. Um, just being exposed to treatment and options and um, having a chance to kind of consider various things and maybe stop using for a period of time, um, that can set people up for success more long-term. We have these long-term studies, uh, well, we have these more short-term studies looking at like buprenorphine, which is also called Suboxone. It's a type of medication-assisted treatment. Uh, in the very beginning, what they did is they put people on it they and they the majority of them stopped using opioids um then they after a couple weeks they tapered them off it mm -hmm. and they all for for the most part everyone returned to using opioids and in this particular study it was prescription opioids so then they they qualified to go back on and they went back on um uh, back on to buprenorphine and in general people did really well or fairly well um and then after a couple months the study ended so where I'm going with this or where it gets interesting is for the study, they then what they did was they did much more kind of long term outcomes. Um, these people were no longer in any sort of trial or anything like that, um, but they did what they could to kind of keep in touch with them. Um, they made treatment resources available to them and what have you, but they looked at them and they tried to reach them several years down the road and five years down the road to see how they were doing. Um, and what was alarming or what was amazing, alarming being a poor choice of words because I mean this is in a positive sort of way was that in general, the longer the time went on, the better and better people seemed to be doing. Even the people that were doing, that had done, were not doing well at any point in the study, that had continued to use or had dropped out um, and, you know, continued to struggle with active addiction throughout, uh, 
in general, especially if they had like ultimately gotten on buprenorphine and stayed on it, were doing quite, quite well. So I sometimes have to just tell myself, even if like things aren't working right now, just kind of trying to stick with somebody, make sure that they know that the door is open, make sure they know how to get help in the future if they're interested in it. A lot of times that's that, that I think is where the, the biggest effects can be. If I have someone who's using um, a loved one, someone who lives lives with you know me, uh, or um, you know someone I'm close to, should should the demand be to stop, stop and go to treatment, or I'm not going to talk to you anymore? Like, should the first request be to stop using? If you view it as a disease, and I think this is again this is a helpful way to use it uh, or to think about it. Um, that would be akin to saying, telling someone with diabetes to stop having high sugars, um, which may not be reasonable. Um, and so this isn't for me to say then that should not be an approach someone should take, um, telling someone that they must stop. But I think there are more, there may be more productive uh, 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 courses to pursue. Um, for instance, if you have to make an ultimatum, insist that the person goes to some sort of treatment or some sort of evaluation um, and see if you can attend and be there for a part of it to give your input and to get some advice um, and to get some resources and what have you and to start the process in that regard. So the first thing one could ask would be, um, I insist you go and see a doctor or, yeah. you know, or, and maybe set up who that doctor is and, and get that lined up for them, but insist that they go and see that doctor yeah. and that you go with them and that you talk about this and l look at some options. Yeah, and maybe they already have a doctor. Mm -hmm. um, I, but of course, maybe they don't as well. Mm -hmm. um, so if the first um, step is, well, the first step is get someone to understand that, that, that there's a problem and, and kind of um, admit it and start to find a motivating factor to, to seek treatment um, and then get them to someone who can offer them a, explain, present a range of options yeah. and, and assess that um, and stop me if I'm wrong. Let me stop you there okay. also. Um, and also an option being nothing. Okay. Um, you know, the idea of, well, is this something that, you know, I can check in, you know, we, you know we, we, we don't have to do anything at all. Is this something that I can check back in with you about in a couple months and see where you're at? Mm -hmm. In what situations would that be, um, would that be applicable? Um, well, a big one would be if that's what the person's willing to accept. Okay. Um, if they're completely obstinate and, yeah, yeah. and not wanting to have any part of that conversation. Yeah, just knowing that the door is open. Which leads, leads me to this other popular um, conception that, that at some point um, the support system should kind of walk away. I mean, keep in mind, that, as you know, the support system is one often taking a lot of kind of the abuse and yeah. theft and lies and erratic behavior right. and bailing people out of jail there often comes that critical point of when do i stop answering yeah, the yeah. phone is in a sense giving up on them helping them reach rock bottom uh to find help or should i always just have the door open and continue to kind of put yeah. oneself through that i don't have an easy answer for that um and one 
one, and I'm glad you brought that up, um, because one thing that I do want to say, um, when I, the downside to talking about and, and somewhat kind of enthusiastically talking about addiction as a disease and what have you, is that if I'm not careful, um, it's easy for people who have been, for lack of a better term, um, victims of yeah, I think that's a, a spot-on term. Um, you know, like victims um, of people uh, uh, that may, in part, be you know, uh, be driven by substance use and what have you. Um, there's a way to uh, you have to be careful not to to write off their experience and what have you, and just say, well, the person that perpetrated this just has a disease, and that's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people who are on the receiving end or on the other end of some of these things um, or some of these issues, it's, it's it's I think it's very important to to be be sensitive to their experiences. Um, so as far as I think each case is different or every circumstance is different. So do you, so the truth is somewhere in the middle. Okay. Yeah. I you, don't, I'm sure it's, it's not an easy question to answer because yeah. I think everyone faces that and they don't know what the right answer is. And yeah, in yeah. any way they go, they probably feel like they've made the wrong choice, but I think it's important to hear yes. from someone like you who studies this about like where, because oftentimes those are the only people who may be able to get them into treatment. And it's it's a far easier, even though it's an impossible question to answer, it's a far easier question to answer than it is to be in the midst of it and actually be be, be living it and experiencing it and what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, any sort of help that the person who's like any, the, the family member or loved one can get um, any sort of more kind of personalized uh, advice and guidance they can they can receive, be it by a person's primary care physician or anyone else, um, or maybe somebody that they've interfaced with in addiction treatment. Um, I think that that's that's the best advice I can give um, because I think again the truth is somewhere in the middle. You don't want to just be you know kind of blindly accepting and say hey we're well, sure whatever you want to do go ahead and do it. Um, at the same time, you know you don't want to just say the door is closed and the door is closed forever. Um, mm-hmm. Another challenge I think people face is how does someone become a good kind of consumer of treatment? How do you judge whether treatment facility A is better than treatment facility B or, and part of that is I think also like what's the standard of care they should be looking for? Is it medication assisted treatment always something they should definitely be considering or? Treatment should not insist upon medication-assisted treatment, but I would say any sort of treatment uh, that is dismissive of it mm-hmm. or tries to steer people away of it, I would be extremely wary about it okay. um, because I think that doesn't go with the evidence base, um, and I think there are really um, life-or-death considerations. Uh, we know that medication-assisted treatment, in addition to all the other benefits that it confers, um, it profoundly reduces uh, the overdose death rate. Um, so in just, in just no uncertain terms, a lot of times of what I've been talking about or what we've been talking about today have been somewhat equivocal about or talking in gray areas, but this is a black, or black and white sort of thing. Um, just very kind of clear cut, 100% medication assisted treatment. Um, when people go into medication assisted treatment, their risk of death, uh, depending on how you measure it, is cut by at least half, if not more. Um, and when people leave it, especially premature 
prematurely, their risk of death goes back up enormously. So, and, you know, death is just not only that, um, when we view addiction as a chronic disease, the fact is, like, people can recover and do, you know, and can, can go on and um, have healthful lives and what have you, but, like, they have to keep alive in the meantime. And so any sort of treatment that is not, um, or th that's trying to steer people away from medication-assisted treatment, um, I, I think it's very, very misguided. And is um, the counseling portion of it um, as important? I've, I've heard varying takes on that sometimes yeah. uh, in terms of, uh, like, should one be looking for a 12-step thing? Should one be looking for a religious-based thing, an inpatient, outpatient? Are there, are there basic standards one should be looking for that are more proven than others? Um, people need different, again, it's one size doesn't fit all. People need different levels of treatment um, at different points in time. Mm -hmm. um, people with relatively mild substance use disorders might need less treatment. People with a lot of structure and support in their life might need less treatment. Mm -hmm. People in a drug-saturated environment with minimal social supports, maybe they're homeless, maybe they're not. Um, maybe they need more treatment than that. As far as the amount, I think it varies, um, but treatment should also be, one thing to keep in mind about treatment is that it should be long term. Mm -hmm. um, if somebody goes, let's say somebody goes to like a 28 day residential treatment program, that should just be viewed as the start. That's just to kind of stabilize the person and give them kind of enough tools and room to really actually begin to engage in recovery, which is a long-term sort of thing. So they should need, um, they would benefit from aftercare, continued addiction treatment when they're done with that. Mutual help groups, things like Narcotics Anonymous, things like Alcoholics Anonymous, other 12-step you know, groups, other sorts of mutual help groups like Smart Recovery, um, things like that can be enormously beneficial faith-based sorts of things can as well um, but their needs or people tend to do best when there's when there's treatment involved to find treatment options in Illinois please call 833-234-6343 or visit helplineil.org for treatment options across the United States please call 1-800-662-HELP or 1-800-662-4357. For information on this podcast and other efforts in Cook County, please visit cookcountysheriff.org. Thank you for listening to this installment of Breaking Free. For episodes, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play.